Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the weeds and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace." In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Father, I pray that you would open our ears to the meaning of these words, that you would teach us as Jesus interprets this parable, how you would have us handle the mysteries that you have revealed to us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Hard people are made hard by enduring hard things. If you've ever wondered what it was that hardened me so much, I can explain it to you. In graduate school, I had to attend what was called creative writing workshops. That may sound fun to you, but in a creative writing workshop, you bring the story that you have labored over into the classroom, and your fellow students read it and discuss it, and you're not allowed to say a word. You sit in silence and listen to other people interpret, actually misinterpret, your work. And it's really frustrating to hear the ways in which they twist your words and and seemingly willfully misunderstand what you clearly intended. Now, the logic of this experience, I guess, is twofold. One is to instill in you a thick skin so that you are accustomed to criticism. The other, though, is to illustrate a point that when people read your work, you're not there to explain it to them if you see people reading it and misunderstanding it, that you as the author need to do a better job so that it's not so easily 
misunderstood. Now, that logic makes perfect sense as long as you're dealing with careful interpreters. But if you're dealing with careless interpreters, then no effort you make will be enough. Anything can be misinterpreted if the interpreter is not careful. Jesus, as he teaches in parables, is well aware of the fact that a parable is easily misinterpreted. In this parable, once again, he gives not only the story, but also the interpretation. And he does this, I think, in order to teach his disciples and us how to be careful interpreters of what he says. Now, in the rest of chapter 13, let me warn you, Jesus stops interpreting the parables. So as we work through these parables, we'll be, as it were, on our own. So right now, when we have the luxury of having Jesus tell us the meaning of what he's saying, we should make the effort to learn from how Jesus interprets so that we can interpret like him. So this morning's going to be a little bit different. We're going to be talking about how to interpret carefully. We'll talk about the secret of interpreting parables. Then we'll talk about the secret of this parable. And then at the end, assuming it's not already nighttime, we will talk about what Jesus is telling you through this parable. But let's start with the secret of parables in general. How do we interpret parables carefully? If you remember from two weeks ago, I said that a parable is a cryptic narrative analogy. And when you're deciphering these cryptic narrative analogies, the first question to ask yourself is the obvious one. Which images in the story are symbols, and what do they symbolize? It's as simple as that. And yet, it's not so simple when you think about it. Because you have to remember that not all the images in the parable are symbols, and that parables are more like analogies than they are like allegories. So they're suggestive of connections, but not everything connects. Take, for example, the text that we've just read, the parable of the weeds. When Jesus explains it to the disciples, if you look in your order of worship, it's very clear as you scan that explanation, Jesus makes seven connections. There are seven images in the parable that Jesus says represent something else. The sower is the Son of Man, he says. That's Jesus. The field is the world. The good seed, that's the sons of the kingdom. That's believers. The weeds, those are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who planted them, that's the devil. The harvest is the end of the age or the coming judgment And the reaper, Jesus says, are angels. Which actually illustrates a lesson for us in careful interpretation. Don't overinterpret the images. Remember that not everything is a symbol. Because when Jesus explains the parable, not every detail, not every image has a corresponding symbolic value. Jesus doesn't say, for example, the men who were sleeping when the seed was planted, are inattentive pastors who should have been paying attention and weren't. He doesn't say that. The servants who asked, do you want us to gather? 
Jesus doesn't say those are the legalists in the church who are trying to purify the body before its time. When the, the wheat is gathered into the barn, Jesus doesn't say the barn is heaven. When the weeds are burned in the fiery furnace, Jesus doesn't say the furnace is hell. We'll talk about that one in a minute, so I hope you're paying attention. By their very nature, parables are open to interpretation. And if Jesus hadn't given us a key to this parable, we might read it differently than we do once Jesus has explained. Is it wrong to assign meaning to some detail in the story if Jesus hasn't done that? Probably not as long as we hold those interpretations lightly and recognize that these are not the connections that Jesus makes. But we're going to see parables where Jesus doesn't make the connections for us. We're going to inevitably have to speculate to a certain extent. And that means that for the parables that don't come with an interpretation, we have to treat them the way we would treat any metaphor, any analogy. We look for the central idea, the main connection, the thing that it points to. And when it comes to the details, we try not to overinterpret them and not to put too much weight on the connections that we do make. Another lesson that this parable teaches us is this. Don't assume that an image symbolizes the same thing whenever it's used. If we had not read the text first, then I said to you, All right, image of the harvest, what does it symbolize? What does the harvest mean in Scripture? You'd probably start thinking along these lines. Well, that has to do with the fulfillment of the Great Commission. right? In John 4, the fields are white unto harvest. God calls laborers into the field to go out. Some sow and others reap, not always the same people. In that metaphor, the harvest is the, the world in need of the Gospel. And the sowers and the reapers are us. But not so here. That is not the way that Jesus uses the metaphor of the harvest here. Instead, here the harvest is the end of the age. It's the judgment to come. And the reapers aren't us. The reapers, he says, are angels. The same image can be used in different contexts to communicate different things. We have to pay attention to that. Take the field as a metaphor as well. The field, Jesus says, is the world. But as you think about the way he talks about the field, you can see there's a complexity to that image. And you'll see this reflected in the way that interpreters approach this passage as well, so that you don't want to limit that idea of the world too strictly. Uh, Here, the kingdom and the world seem to be more or less synonymous. You might think of it this way, the aspect of the world which is not aligned with the kingdom will be judged and cast away so that in time the kingdom and the world will be more or less synonymous. So as we think about the world here, we're thinking about the kingdom, but we're also thinking about something larger than that. At the same time, when we think about this passage, other commenters will say this tells us something profound about the church and the presence of evil in the church during this age. Is that an illegitimate connection? If somebody says to you, I think this is talking about the fact that that even in the body of Christ, we we have weeds as well as wheat. 
Would you say to them, no, no, no. Jesus says the field is the world, not the church. No. Because, again, there's some complexity. There's some overlap. Right now, the kingdom is the church in the world. But in the age to come, the kingdom and the church and the world will come together. And so, again, we recognize that the images can mean different things in different places, but also the images themselves can be complex. The point of the parable that Jesus is teaching is what we have to keep in mind. He's giving the parable in order to explain the way things are now. But we'll come back to that. There's another lesson that we should derive from this example. It has to do with what I said earlier about the fiery furnace. Right? We make a connection when we hear those words. We say he's talking about hell. And I said he's not, but he is. But he's talking about it in a way that remains metaphorical. That's different from the way he talks about other things. Right? When he describes that punishment, he describes it in metaphorical terms, not just in this side of the analogy, but also in that side of the analogy as well. Now, we debate a lot about how to interpret the metaphor into whatever the literal reality is. The way that we often talk about judgment to come and that that final eternal punishment might be an argument over whether or not there is literal fire. Right? Is the fire a metaphor or is the fire literal? We did an episode of the commentary recently that takes up questions like this. The title of it is Literal Hell, and I recommend that you listen to it. However, I just want to point out to you that if you read this parable carefully, all of the language that Jesus is using here is metaphorical. Calvin says that that's intentional and that we should read the metaphors as metaphors. Let me read you his words because I I think there's a wisdom in his approach. He says, this is a metaphorical expression, this fiery furnace. For as the infinite glory which is laid up for the sons of God so far exceeds all our senses that we cannot find words to express it, so the punishment which awaits the reprobate is incomprehensible and is therefore shadowed out according to the measure of our capacity. I love that phrase, shadowed out that these are signs and symbols representing a a terror so great that we cannot comprehend it directly. He adds, some commentators, I'm aware, carry their ingenious inquiries into every minute phrase. But as there is reason to fear that subtleties which rest on no solid grounds may lead us into idle fooleries, I choose to philosophize more sparingly and he rests satisfied with the plain and natural meaning. Now, kids, as you listen week after week to the big question, you're always hearing me say things like, the Bible says this, but on that point, we don't know. We speculate. I could, if I wanted to be taken more seriously, say, I choose to philosophize more sparingly. It's the same idea. To be careful when we interpret You may recall that in Matthew 3, Jesus spoke in similar terms about the judgment that is to come. There, Calvin essentially repeats the same point. He says, many persons have entered into ingenious debates about the eternal fire by which the wicked will be tormented after the judgment. But we may conclude from many passages of Scripture that it is a metaphorical expression. Then he adds this, 
Let us lay aside the speculations by which foolish men weary themselves to no purpose and satisfy ourselves with believing that these forms of speech denote in a manner suited to our feeble capacity a dreadful torment which no man can comprehend and no language can express. The last thing in the world I want you to think is that when I say this is metaphorical language, what I'm telling you is it's not that bad. If anything, it's the opposite. It is so bad that there is no literal way for it to be expressed in our language. And certainly no reason for us not to take seriously the judgment that is to come. But again, we need to be careful interpreters. All of these subtleties are wrapped up in that. I'll give you an example of careless interpretation. In Mark chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus lays hands on a blind man and then he asks this man, do you see anything? And the man's reply in the King James Version is this, I see men as trees walking. Now you can imagine what he means. Like he's opened his eyes for the first time, he gains vision, but the vision is a little bit distorted. The image is stretched a little bit, kind of like cowboys in a spaghetti western, something like that. But then his vision becomes more clear. I, however, heard an entire sermon based on a different interpretation of what that man said. In that sermon, it was interpreted this way. The man sees human beings, but he doesn't see them as human. He sees them as inanimate objects, as trees, not people, as things, not persons. And the whole sermon was an exhortation to us to see people as people and not to objectify them, which is a great point. But it has nothing to do with Mark chapter 8 and what's happening there. It's an example of careless interpretation. The thing is, oftentimes when we interpret carelessly, it doesn't bother us so much because it seems like the moral of the story is still a good lesson. If the Bible doesn't teach it here, it probably teaches it somewhere else, so it's all good. But the habit of careless interpretation is corrosive. And when we are tolerant of careless interpretation, eventually it's our own wisdom that we're teaching and not the wisdom of Scripture. As you think about this parable in particular and the secrets that it reveals, as we apply some of these lessons, you begin to see things come into focus. As I say, images shift, images develop. Like the seed is another example. The seed that is planted in this parable is not quite the same as the seed that's planted last time in the parable of the sower. Right In the parable of the sower, that seed was the word of the kingdom being spread. But here... The seed is something else. It's actual people who are being planted. The, the sons of, of God are being planted in this way. Now you might say, okay, but that's a distinction without a difference. You might just say here, the seed is the result of the seed in the earlier parable. As the message goes out, believers come to faith and it's basically the same thing, but, but not so much. The way that Jesus speaks here, the implication is that the sower, Christ, is not just spreading the potential of belief, but he's actually doing the work that brings belief about. Like he's planting people who grow up in faith, and that seems to be more assertive than just scattering seed. And yet, again, remember, 
We don't want to over-interpret our images either because the devil also plants things in this field. He plants the weeds. And that same metaphor of planting is used to describe them, which might lead someone to say, I get it. God creates good people and the devil creates bad people. That's an example of putting too much weight on the metaphor. Because really, we're not talking about how good and bad people, how righteous and unrighteous come to be. We're addressing the reality that they're all mixed together in this age. That that the roots are intertwined. That's the actual thing that Jesus is pointing to. Right? He says that the, the seed or the weeds, these are the sons of God or the sons of the evil one. But do bear in mind that even that is a metaphor that the idea of, of birth, when applied to spiritual things, is a metaphor speaking to a spiritual reality, a deeper reality. But with all those lessons applied, and all that subtlety in mind, as we come to interpret the parable, it's not actually that complicated. Right? What Jesus is saying is kind of simple. We can apply the lessons and we get more or less something like this. At the end of the age, a judgment will come. Angels sent by Christ will gather, he says, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace, take them into judgment. There will be punishments for evil doing. That fire, that judgment, note, it's not a fire of purification, the way fire is sometimes used symbolically. This is a fire of judgment, of punishment. Right? It's accompanied by mourning. He says there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is a final execution of judgment. And in contrast to that mourning, there's also the glorification of the sons of righteousness. The righteous sons of the kingdom, he says, will be vindicated on this day of judgment. They will shine like the sun, he says. They will reflect the glory of God, their Father, as they were made to do. Now, as you reflect on that, you can immediately, I hope, intuit that there's some theology going on here. That there's some theological principles that we might find implied in this passage. For example, uh, the idea of future judgments. And accompanying that, the idea that right now God is exercising patience as we wait for that judgment. There's a lot of rich theology to unpack there. But there's another thing. When we talk about the church, we'll often make a distinction between the visible and the invisible church. We'll say there is the visible church, what what appears to be the church, uh, those who profess faith, who outwardly seem to possess faith. But that's not the same thing as the invisible church, those who actually possess faith. And in the wheat and the weeds here, you might see an implication of that distinction. There's something else as well when it comes to the kingdom and the secrets of the kingdom. There's that distinction that we make between the already and the not yet. That the kingdom is present, but not yet fully realized. So there are some things we wouldn't expect to go on in the kingdom age that do until the end of this age. We'll come back to that. But I would suggest to you this that like the parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds is not primarily intended to teach us doctrine. It's not primarily a theological exhortation. It's an emotional one. 
the, the frame of reference, the thing that, that, that inspires this, the catalyst for this teaching is not a, a theological question in the minds of the disciples. I think it's more of an experiential one. It's, it's a deeper uncertainty. It's a kind of dismay that they feel. If the parable of the sower addresses the dismay of believers who see the gospel going out in the world and somehow failing to do what they expected it to do in the lives of people, then I think the impulse for the parable of the weeds could probably be summed up in the question that the servants address to the master. Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? They look at the field They see the wheat, they see the weeds, they turn to the master and they ask a question. Not, hey, how did these weeds get here? They ask, what did you do wrong? What did you do wrong, master, for there to be weeds in the field? It shouldn't be this way. Didn't you sow good seed? If so, how did this happen? That, I think, is is the central question that we should reflect on here. Because it's to that question that this parable offers an explanation. It's to that doubt that Jesus then explains that in this age, though the kingdom is present, evil is still at work. And part of the devil's plan involves sowing confusion. It's to that question that Jesus offers the explanation That just as the harvesters wait for the crop to come before they start reaping, so God is waiting so that all those He intends to bring in and gather can be brought in. That He's not going to rush to judgment, but will patiently wait until the fullness of time has come. It's to that doubt, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? that Jesus replies that neither the presence of evil nor the delaying of justice are reasons for concern. Ultimately, they point to the overarching plan of God. It's not unusual for the servants not to understand what's happening, even under their noses. What Jesus is saying is, the servants may have no idea what's happening, But the Master knows what He's doing. To the servants, it may seem like things are out of control. That the field has has gone off in some direction and is beyond saving unless they intervene. Jesus says, no, the Master has it all in hand. The Master knows. And in time, He will act rightly. That's the secret of this parable. Not just the theological implications, but the assurance to us that God knows what He's doing. That's what Jesus is telling you through this parable. If you want to hear what Jesus is saying to you right now through these words, all you need to do is make the question of those servants your question too. You just have to give voice to the same question they asked. Did you not sow good seed in your field? Let's be honest, that's not hard for you to do. That's not hard. Maybe you've never asked that question in those words, but you've asked it over and over and over again, day in and day out. Their question has been your question when you've considered the works of God. 
Why do you do things this way? Why do you let that happen? Why do you let them get away with this? It's the same question in different words. Why don't you act now? Why don't you do something? Why do you wait and wait and wait? That's their question. And that's our question. And when we realize that, we realize that this parable is not just an answer for them. It's an answer for us as well. Because the dismay that they feel, we feel too. Because when we look at the field, the world, it doesn't seem to be the way it should be. Certainly not the way it should be if God really is on the move. Because the way that God does things makes us feel that something must be wrong, that something's not working, it fills us with dread. How do you explain the presence of these weeds? How do you explain that things aren't the way they should be? That the kingdom isn't the way that it should be? Well, that's what brings us to that kingdom secret, that already and not yet. You hear me use that phrase and you think, that's a nice, interesting, fine point of theology. That's not why God gave it to us. He gave it to us for exactly this dilemma. What Jesus is revealing, and this is something that the disciples wouldn't learn until time had passed and things had taken place that made it clear. But essentially it's this, that the first coming of Jesus inaugurates a kingdom which grows through the church, but that kingdom is not yet fully realized. And it won't be until Jesus comes again. And there is no solution to the problem of the field until that happens. There is no reaping for us to do. There is no weeding that we can do and pull up the bad and be left with the good. Only His reapers can do that work. But the fact that we have to wait is not a reason to despair. It's actually part of the plan. The way things are right now with the wheat and the weeds growing up together, their roots intertwined, this is part of what God is doing. And that's a good thing. God's patience is not something for us to chafe against. It's something for us to delight in and rejoice in and to learn from. The fact that God shows loving patience, that He demonstrates His willingness to wait, that He will bear with our sin, that He will bear with the injustice so that all the good He intends to do will be done, a good greater than we ever imagined. That divine patience should be an example to us. It should be the source of our hope. It's not over till it's over. And when it's over, we will see that what He has done is good. But in the meantime, this gives us a powerful warrant never to lose hope. It gives us a powerful warrant never to think it's time to start uprooting the weeds, but instead to be patient, to rest in what He's doing, and to labor in hope for the harvest that is to come. So don't be discouraged by the continuing power of evil. Jesus says, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged as you see evil in the world around you. Don't be discouraged as you see evil in the church around you. Don't be discouraged as you see evil in you. 
Instead, recognize that God regards all of this with patience. And you should too. The field is God's. And whatever the devil has planted will be uprooted in time. You don't need to worry about that. Instead, be encouraged by God's patience to be patient like He is. Whenever you feel that that twinge of doubt, when you feel it's been too long, there's no reason to hold out hope, remember that if God can wait, then you can too. If God can be patient, then you can be patient too. Don't rush to judgment. Don't be quick to condemn the shortcomings of others. If God, the holy God, can be patient with the sins of others, you can be patient. You can wait. You can trust in Him as well. Recognize that the presence of evil doesn't mean that God's plan is failing or that He's not fully in control. This too should reassure us it's all part of His plan. It's as simple as this, this this secret of the kingdom. What Jesus is saying to us here through these signs, these symbols, is rest in Me. Trust in Me. Believe in what I'm doing. And whatever you see, and whatever confusion it leads to, whatever questions you cannot answer, whatever symbols you cannot interpret, that's okay. Be patient and know that I'm in control. And what I am doing is good. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.